Ja, morgen. Stick it in your, stick it in your, stick it in your, stick it in your. Come on, Nub, where are you? Let's go. I was waiting for Herb to say it. I, I, that is the lyrics to this theme song. And stick it up your, uh, stick it up your, uh, stick it up your. Uh. That was the alternative version of that song, which... Um, I don't think had been released prior to now. This is uh, you're getting a exclusive on the old podcast here of of the mashup between Herb Albert and Nookie. So you're welcome. I'm sure Herb was a big fan of Limp Biscuit. I'm guessing. Don't say that you never heard anything special on Two Twins in an Album. And by the way, welcome. To two twins in an album here, episode 23. This will be interesting today. You know, um, I, I'm looking forward to it, Nub. Limp Biscuit, certainly a, a group that many have their opinions and uh, perceptions of. But really diving into this work, in hindsight, people kind of look at and giggle. But at the time, if we can all just put all of our post-conceived notions, I would call them, aside and remember how enormous this album was and in many ways, you know, how um, groundbreaking it was, you know, it kind of makes sense to uh, dive into it a little bit regardless of your necessarily your initial thoughts on this band. You know, before we go any further, though, if you could just, I know that it's a podcast and people can't see us, but maybe you could do a little play-by-play here. I just, I have to do something if we're going to, you know, it's, it's like putting on your work clothes or putting on a certain, you know, a certain uniform to do a certain act, right? Putting your pants on one leg at a time. You have to dress the part for whatever it is that you're about to do. So if you just don't mind, maybe you could describe to the listeners. Oh, sure. Okay. So So we're on zoom. So nubs is doing something visual. So I'll do my best, uh, you know, Marv Albert here. Oh, (laughs) so nubs has uh placed onto his head the backwards mlb baseball cap now it's not red yeah i believe is that the the old detroit tigers there this is this is the closest i can get uh (laughs) uh, so i don't have any red new era hats but i do have this and now now i feel like i'm in uniform now you're ready now listen you know i was medium inspired 30 seconds ago. Now I'm ready to go seeing you in that yeah. fitted backwards hat. So I wish everybody could see it, but uh, you look good. You look I, good. I, I all of a sudden just feel like Fred Durst. I just do. Yeah. yeah. By the way, have you seen Fred Durst lately? Yeah. yeah. The, ba- the band is back together. They have been for, I think a couple of years and by back together, I mean with West Borland and like the whole, you know, the, the original lineup and stuff. Whole gang. Yeah. <laughs> Fred still rocks the, red backwards new era hat but fred is looking a little doughy and a little gray and he's got a long beard it's it's just a band like this and and good for them for getting out there and playing and i agree they still sound great yeah they do um but you know bands like this it's 
pretty much hilarious to watch them age. You know, when you kind of look at the attitude and the swagger and all those things that took place. And there's a clip, actually, I'm not sure if you noticed it in the in the uh, research, but fairly recently, Limp Bizkit was playing on stage. And I guess as sort of a prank or just sort of a whatever uh, shaggy too dope from uh, Insane Clown Posse ran out on the stage and tried to drop kick Fred Durst. (laughs) <laughs> now you should watch it if you haven't seen it it's an impressive drop kick you know and i i guess shaggy too dope uh is a former uh wrestler like a pro wrestler or whatever so you could you could tell he you know had some moves but um it looked like maybe a stunt which fred durst was never uh afraid to pull a stunt or two to get publicity you know he was a he was a no publicity is bad publicity kind of guy. So it looked like maybe it was a little bit staged, but it's kind of a hilarious thing. Cause you know, Fred Durst is already looking a little old and then just some maniac comes out and tries to drop kick him. I mean, it's, it's, it's a clip worth watching for sure. Listen T you can't fool us. Don't pretend like you're not a juggalo yourself. Right? Oh goodness. Yeah. Let's not act like yeah. uh, shaggy two dope is some sort of stranger to you. No, I was really looking forward to the uh, gathering of juggalos this year. I, I go every year and, uh, <laughs> you know, got uh canceled. But Hey, let's be honest though. Who owned a couple copies of the great Malenko? Oh, sure. Who owned the ringmaster on CD. I mean, you, you, those were, those were in your collection. I don't think I had the ringmaster, but I certainly had the great Malenko and you know, there are oh, a couple pretty, yeah. and there are a couple pretty good songs on there. There sure. Well, well, let's see if, uh, if insane clown posse or anyone else, uh, made it into, uh, into this episode's selection of albums that you've been into lately. So why don't you and your hat come join us for a little round and round. Three albums on the radar. What do you got, Nub? My first album is something called The Great Malenko. It's from <laughs> Insane Clown. Great choice. Boy, the timeliness, the coincidence of that. Unbelievable. By the way, if you ever really do want to see something funny, just look up YouTube interviews of Shaggy 2 Dope, particularly <laughs> when ICP used to go on the Howard Stern show. Yeah. Those appearances were incredible. And Shaggy is like... An amazing character. It's no so, you know, I found myself, this is, um, you know, kind of joking about the uh, gathering of the jugglers, but there was a, this was not like one night. This was like a period of a couple nights going back maybe a couple months ago. I got completely mesmerized on a YouTube trance of just watching videos of the gathering of the jugglers. I mean, the people watching the festivities that take place. It is an absolutely unbelievable, fairly unfathomable event, but one with a lot of love and a lot of, um, you know, camaraderie. It's, it's really fascinating. This whole, I can't decide if I see, I mean, they must be secret geniuses because they've been doing this for 30 years now. And who would have thought that, essentially a novelty act would be able to, to sort of create longevity. But I think it's all part of this community that they've built with their fans. And if you put all the sort of nonsensical stuff aside, it's actually pretty amazing and somewhat impressive. So one of my really good friends and loyal 
Two Twins and an Album listener, PFO. Shout out PFO. Oh, yeah. Shout out to PF. It's yeah, a legit sure. juggalo. Legit. And he's been begging me for the last few years to go to one of the Halloween shows. And one of these years, I definitely will. Because he, he, oh, yeah. he kind of agrees with everything you just said. I mean, it's just a spectacle. But he digs the music. Too. I mean, he's, he's a legit mm-hmm. ICP fan. And he's been begging us to do an ICP album. Uh, for really? Him. Yeah. So maybe we'll have to do Malenko. And just huh. uh, strangely enough, it's almost like we plan these things. And trust me, everyone, we don't. No. That, that would actually involve preparation. Yeah, we should probably. You know nothing about. Yeah. But it, when we get to the wonder stories, my wonder story about Limp Biscuit actually has a, a sneakily interesting connection to ICP. And it has to do with uh, a record store that I worked at. And we'll get to that in wonder stories. Man, this is basically turning into an ICP episode. Yeah. Uh, episode, yeah episode 23 has changed. We are now doing ICP. <laughs> yeah. All right. What do you got round and round, buddy? Okay. So round and round for me is, is not ICP sadly, but it does include a, a few, a little bit on the obscure side, progressive rock albums. One is by Dave Greenslade who led a band called Greenslade. His first solo album cactus choir is just a really hidden gem of the mid 1970s. Everyone should check it out. Great keyboard work, a lot of good prog stuff. Love it. Next would be um, artist who I consider prog, which is Kate Bush. And her second album, Lionheart. One of your favorites, certainly. Absolutely. Like, like sort of madly in love with Kate Bush. We all kind of have that (laughs) list of artists that we, you know, basically would throw it all away for. Kate Bush might be on that particular list. Although, you know, she kind of hides in her house. So I don't know how interested in me she would be. Actually, you know what? In that sense, she might really like me. I like to hide in my house too. Her second album, Lionheart, which followed the Kick Inside, which was her kind of smash debut, uh, is actually kind of a better album. And it's a it's a second album that I think a lot of Kate Bush fans don't love. But I don't know. I love it. I love the sound of it. And the third would be a, a Todd Rundgren album, a double album called Something Anything, which in the last couple of years got a Record Store Day re-release treatment. Really good stuff from Todd Rundgren. I really like when he was proggy. I'm not such a fan of when he was super poppy, but... That's what's running around for me, T. What's uh, spinning around for you? Well, can't accuse you of tying, uh, of theming your round and round into today's episode. You know, that's for sure. But three uh, interesting choices there for sure. Um, The first for me is uh, Jane's Addiction, who we have uh, uh, highlighted on the old podcast here in a Ritual Deal Habitual episode. But this is their record, Strays which was sort of, I guess, the, their reunion album in the late 90s or early 2000s. I don't remember the exact date, but this has been hailed as a little bit of a, on the topic of new metal, a little bit of a um, pioneering effort toward this, you know, sort of new metal, modern metal genre. So I'm listening to it again. I'm I'm obviously more of a fan of the classic Jane's Addiction work, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out if Strays is something that really was kind of important to the band and, and I, guess, I suppose to the genre. So digging into Strays a little bit. If I remember right, the first three songs are really good. And it's got, Strays does have the, what was that show on HBO? Entourage. I think yeah. the theme song for Entourage is on Strays too. Exactly right. And I mean, there's, there's some blazing tracks. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. So I think what you you almost have to put their previous work aside and kind of focus on this almost as a new band. You know, they were without Eric Avery. Navarro kind of came in with some of the experience that he had had in his recent music career. And, you know, Perry just doing Perry things. So 
uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting one to revisit. The second is also a, uh, a artist that we have uh, focused on here fairly recently, Ozzy Osbourne. We did the Osmosis record, and it has made me want to listen to No More Tears a little bit. You know, as I mentioned in the episode, you kind of see those two as a little bit of a uh, almost like a package deal within the same window of time and this entrance of Zach Wild and, you know, so No More Tears, obviously a great record and been digging into that a bit. And then the third is a band that, man, they were hot for a while. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like, where have they gone as Band of Horses, you know, who were really making a charge in sort of the, you know, around kind of 2010, I would say time period of, you know, a really up and coming band sort of part of this, a little bit of this like neo jam, you know, type um, genre. And then I don't really know what's happened to them, but their record infinite arms, which I think is their best album is really a great record from a great band that I wish I knew what they were up to nowadays. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they, uh, maybe they lost it. Maybe they lost their fastball. I'm not sure. But, uh, but anyway, uh, band of horses, infinite arms, a great record. So on we go to what many would consider a masterpiece of its genre. Most would agree that Significant Other still resides as a a real entrance for many. And most would consider a masterpiece of rap metal. And uh, it'll be it'll be great to dig into this record and dig into this band a little bit. So why don't we get going on the old nerd deets, done dirt cheap? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Significant other was released on June twenty second, nineteen ninety nine. Back when we were all freaking out about the world ending, weren't we? I know I was panicked about. Uh, something like a, you know, worldwide virus. Yeah. Keep us all indoors for yeah, we, months. Yeah. We were about, to, you know, a little bit uh, comparable to what we're seeing here in 2020. There was a, a definite, you know, scare uh, from many around, you know, once the clock hits midnight on uh, the, on the year 2000, the new millennium, are all the systems and processes going to uh, stop and code out and have a problem? You know, so I know that you and I were very concerned about this while we were in Windsor, Ontario, celebrating uh, New Year's Eve uh, in the year 2000. We were, <laughs> yeah. if there was a word to describe us, it would be uh, very worried, I think, that night. Yeah, Y2K happened. It just happened. 20 years later and had nothing to do with computers and zeros. So there you <laughs> yeah, go. That's pretty much true. It was Limp Biscuits' uh, sophomore album and the follow-up to their record, uh, their debut record called $3 Bill Y'all. Terry Date. And so part of, I think, what we'll probably talk about today is whether you like Limp Biscuit or not, whether you think this album was you know, important or not, whether you like the genre or not, one thing everybody can agree on is that this album sounds phenomenal. I mean, I, I don't care, again, how you feel about it. If you're just looking at pure production value here and you're looking at pure sonic value, it is a really incredible sounding album and when you look at the personnel it's not a big surprise terry date produced it brendan o'brien mixed it so 
shocker that this thing <laughs> sounded the way it does. And I think a real innovative record sonically in many ways. Now, combining all these genres, which you hear, a little bit of sort of neo-psychedelia, certainly some rap elements, some hip-hop elements, uh, some metal elements, uh, some groove metal elements. I mean, you got a lot going on here. And giving it this proper sonic treatment, you can tell was important to the band and certainly important to those that were in charge of creating that sound. And, you know, Nub, you get Terry Date and Brendan O'Brien working together. You're going to have a great sounding album. Terry Date is easily one of the best producers of kind of our modern era, but certainly late 90s, early 2000s. He was just on fire. Such a deep sound in his records. He was like a master of low end. And when you listen to Limp Bizkit, especially in Significant Other, you're just blown away by the low end. It's not overpowering. It's just there. And it's yeah. sonically rich and all those things. I mean, Terry Date just... He's one of those producers that if you look at his catalog, you'll just pick and choose things and they'll all sound good. They really will. They will all sound good. It might not be the genre you like or, you know, the style of music that you like, but they'll all for sure sound good. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's basically an all-star duo right there. Pulling the knobs and pushing the buttons as far as making this sound great. It sold 16 million copies. This was an enormous record. Um, it almost, you, you kind of look back and you know, around that time frame, And it's, it's kind of difficult to think of somebody who didn't have this record, you know, I mean, even if you weren't necessarily at the time into this type of music, it was so different and so cutting edge and so iconic. I mean, you had anthems coming from this, this album, you know, and it was just one of those albums that everybody had. And remember, this was before some people soured on Limp Bizkit and soured on Fred Durst. I mean, this was back when, you know, they were cool. They were hitting on all cylinders. And this was just one of those albums that not only everybody had, but it was really acclaimed by critics. You know, a lot of the, particularly the Rolling Stones of the world will now probably, you know, run away from their praise of Limp Biscuit. But I'll tell you what, when this record came out, it was adored by critics. It's always funny because Fred Durst kind of always had this attitude about critical viewpoints of his band. And he always kind of copped this. I don't care what the critics say, but quite honestly, the critics musically and, and certainly uh, from an acclaimed review standpoint really liked this work. Now, who knows how many of them will admit it now, but certainly this was not one that, uh, you know, that the fans loved, but it was panned by critics. Everybody was kind of in agreement on this one, that this was a, a positive piece of work. I think that whole critical thing is sort of uh it's a, it goes a little bit with the, the culture of the band and the, the kind of rap rock thing. It's like, yeah, yeah. You always got to be fighting against something because <laughs> you're right early on, particularly with the, the album that came before significant other, the band was onto something and, and even critics knew it. And when you combine that with the production of the album and, you know, the very strong rhythm section that Limp Bizkit has. And we'll talk more about that as we go. And then of course, the, the true secret weapon of the band, which is Wes Borland on guitar. It's kind of a critic's delight. Now, to your point, the critics would eventually sour on them a little bit over time. And that just shows you why critics don't mean shit. They, they really don't. They blow mm. with the wind just like everybody else. No kidding. 
And and the critics really turned on this band. And I think Fred Durst probably had a little bit to do with that with some of his, shall we say, off the field struggles. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, this band had a very fresh entrance to the scene. And I think that speaks to the astounding success of Limp Bizkit. I mean, the, the, <laughs> their success was off the charts. It was. And, and you know, the, the band came into this, they were already on the map. Now, it was sort of in more of a gimmicky kind of way. They had a, a, a very famed cover of uh, George Michael's Faith on their first album. And it was a huge hit. And it was something, you know, at this time, taking an 80s song like that, you know, kind of a, a goofy song and putting a, you know, metal rap rock kind of twist on it was unique. And and it was a cool version, right? But um, they were already on the map really from faith, but they came into this hungry. They came into this sophomore album saying, you know, we don't want to be a cover band. You know, we don't want to be a gimmicky project. Um, what was that band that did Smooth Criminal? Um, alien Ant Farm. Alien Ant Farm. They didn't want to be Alien Ant Farm, right? I don't so, think anyone wants to be Alien Ant Farm. <laughs> right, totally. So so they came into this really, I think, hungry creatively and and ready to, to execute. Um, and certainly, you know, they, they had to have realized that with the personnel they had in the studio, um, that they really needed to bring, you know, the content. And, and they certainly were able to do that. The lyrical approach and Fred Durst's approach uh, was seemingly, believe it or not, much more mature than it was on their debut. Now, he still does his thing lyrically and all that. But one of the guys, it's really interesting when you look at the process of Significant Other, one of the guys who appears on the album, but also was in the studio a lot, helping Fred Durst vocally was Scott Weiland. And apparently they were, but by the way, everybody loves Fred Durst. I mean, like the, the way he gets painted by some, and it's mostly critics and media, every musician that you talk to or, or hear from, and these are like cool people. These are not like D bags, like people like Fred Durst, you know, like I, I've never heard a bad thing said about him by anyone other than music media or music critics. The fact that Scott Weiland of Stone's Hubble Pilots was in the studio pretty regularly, you know, helping Durst kind of evolve vocally and, and certainly contributing on, on uh, with a great part. And one of the songs on this album shows, I mean, this guy was liked and, and, uh, and respected within the community. Made great connections. Yeah. He had a terrific personality. I mean, really good sense of humor. I'm sure he was a blast to hang with. He was a connector. You know, there's a reason he got into yeah. A&R, you yeah. know, and, and became pretty good A&R guy. I mean, some of the bands that he discovered and eventually signed his own label, you know, pretty notable groups. He was much more than just like a frontman of a band. I think he is underrated for his involvement and expertise in the music industry. He had a good pulse of the times in the late 1990s. And yeah, doggone it, people liked him, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Totally. I mean, he, you know, he grew up in rural North Carolina. He had artistic parents and very typical uh, of this era. He got really into, at a young age, really into rap and, and break dancing and beatboxing and skateboarding. And D I mean, this was very common. This was something that was, you know, very popular around this time in both kind of urban and rural areas. But, you know, to your point, and it's a very important thing, 
when Limp Bizkit signed with Interscope, he was appointed senior VP of A&R. This was not common. You know, you often didn't sign bands and ask them to join your corporation. And so th- this eye, to your point, this eye for, you know, talent, this eye for pop culture fit and all these things, clearly Fred Durst had a good eye for this um, and must have been a great guy to work with because you don't, you know, sign a record deal and become a part of a corporation like Interscope without having some talent and without being very likable. So you're absolutely right. Doggone it. People liked him. One of the other interesting things about Durst, he was a, and this was another thing that was going on around this time that you kind of forget now in the world of digital media and in the world of streaming and all these things is he was one of the first musicians with a rather loud voice to come out and really advocate for file sharing for Napster. In fact, Napster sponsored a couple of Limp Biscuits tours and they not only sort of appreciated that from a partnership standpoint, but, but they really embraced this idea of, listen, this is where the world is headed now. And if it's going to be the best way to get your music out there, then embrace it. Don't fight against it. And, you know, you had Metallica obviously fighting this in court and, you know, it was a whole thing that really kind of polarized a lot of music fans as far as what side of this that you're on. I think more people ended up on Fred Durst's side relative to file sharing and Metallica actually ended up creating kind of a PR problem for themselves by fighting against this thing. So, you know, very dialed in to kind of what's going on around him. He wasn't afraid to create news. He wasn't afraid to create publicity. He wasn't afraid to sort of tiptoe onto the mainstream. He took a bunch of heat for performing with Christina Aguilera uh, at a uh, MTV Awards. So it was always this interesting thing of him being a a mainstream personality, uh, someone with certainly talent and viewpoints and contribution toward the industry. But then coupled with this guy who would get on stage and just wanted to create basically a chaotic approach on stage, wanted people to just go nuts and not in a way that, you know, incited violence or any of that. And we'll get to the whole Woodstock thing, but in a way that just was, you could tell was his outlet for energy and emotion. And he wanted people at his shows to leave realizing that they had mentally and physically just been through the Limp Bizkit experience. Sometimes it hurt him, but for the most part, you know, their live shows were a tremendous kind of part of this whole experience. Now it got a little out of hand at times and got (laughs) them in trouble at times, but you know, there were all, there was a lot going on with Durst and you could tell how, in some ways he left himself open for a lot of these, you know, I would call them media sort of attacks in, in some cases over things where he kind of got screwed over. And in some cases where he kind of walked himself into a trap. Yeah. Once again, we'll get into it at the wonder stories. I'll tell you about the time when I was legitimately scared at a concert, which only happened two (laughs) or three times. But uh, the word, the word for Fred Durst easily is zeitgeist. He just captured the zeitgeist. I mean, he just was yeah. completely aware of the time. The late 1990s were a time of pretty much peace, prosperity, economically for sure. 
And, you know, sort of a time when like white kids all over suburban America were looking for something to channel some energy into, because for the most part, times were pretty good. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Fred Durst and company went through that exact thought process, but he was absolutely all over the zeitgeist of the late 1990s. And you can see that as that time transitioned into another time and everything became more, you know, earthy and authentic and all the things that we see today, there was less room for a character like Fred Durst than there was in 1999. We're in such an era now where like, you know, being genuine and authentic is such a part of music and image. Not in 1999. You know, you could be this kind of character. Like Fred Durst would not fly in 2020. He wouldn't. Young people would not understand, you know, his whole bravado. But in 99, oh yeah. Yeah, it was working just fine. All great points. And great word, Zeitgeist. Well done. I do want to mention as well, I mean, the rhythm section of this band, Sam Rivers and John Otto, incredibly important and certainly will be you know, touching on that quite a bit. Sam Rivers left the band in 2015 over some health problems, but his bass playing, extremely innovative, extremely important. And, you know, Corn was happening at the same time as well. And you got to give them credit for the the unique rhythm section elements that led into that sound. Uh, Limp Bizkit probably hand in hand with them as far as being able to deliver uh, via bass and drums, a very unique groove, uh, rap, you know, metal, new metal, call it whatever you want type of a sound. And, and Rivers and Otto really had a lot to do with that. But lastly, we did brush on Wes Borland. And you're right, probably he was the last to join the band, interestingly, in its history um, as they were forming, but probably the most important member. When it comes to composition, you know, he, he, he's an artist, man. I mean, this guy is like, he took the guitar and wanted to stretch the boundaries of what can be done with it. He's an incredibly creative, I mean, damn near innovator on the guitar as far as what you're able to do with this instrument with six strings and a neck and a bunch of frets. You know, he, he really created some unbelievable sounds and has continued to you know, throughout his career. So this is a true artist on the instrument. You know, early on, you could tell he always struggled a little bit with the Limp Biscuit thing, right? I mean, he quit the band a few times and came back and quit and came back and all that early on. But, you know, once they hit mainstream success, there was no denying that Wes Borland had a tremendous impact on this band and a tremendous impact on what would become a late 90s, early 2000s sound. And, and doing things, you know, I think pretty unheralded, quite honestly, as far as doing things on the guitar that, that few had done prior to, uh, you know, his entry into the scene. Earlier, we mentioned Alien Ant Farm, which is three words in that combination that probably haven't been spoken for a long time. What major labels did what major labels always do, which is they flocked to every single sort of rap rock group with a, you know, enigmatic front man and signed them immediately. The difference for Limp Biscuit, far and away is Wes Borland on guitar and all of his flash and all of his flourish that he brought to the table musically and the rhythm section, probably the most underrated rhythm section of the 1990s. They're so strong, they're rock solid and the groove is just a huge part of the band and 
you hear that on this album, maybe more than any other album that, uh, that the band did. So that's the difference, man. You know, it, it's, it's always about the artists within the group and West Borland, Sam and John brought something to this group that no other group could try and copycat. I just can't wait to hear about the time that you were frightened at I could only imagine where we're going with this, but uh, color me intrigued. Let's get to the wonder stories. Nubs, did you do it all for the Nucky? Let's hear about it. <laughs> I did, but uh, with limited uh, results, if you will. <laughs> okay, two different stories about Limp Bizkit, both of which are significant, no pun intended. My first experience with Limp Bizkit was meeting the band. And uh, I was working at a record store in the Metro Detroit area, pretty famous store. We did in-store appearances. It was kind of one of those indie shops that... Um, brought bands in. And during the summer that I worked there, which was the summer before my junior year in high school, in a matter of about two or three weeks, we brought in Limp Biscuit and ICP. <laughs> the ICP story, we'll have to wait until our ICP episode, which we're sure to do after today. Limp Biscuit came in, it was right after the release of its debut album. And Faith was starting to hit radio, but was in its infancy in terms of any commercial success. And I'm convinced the band was brought in as some sort of favor to Interscope Records or, you know, a PR contact or something between the store and the band because they were really not very known. The line was not very long to meet the band. They came in really, really cool, humble guys, sat at the table, signed, you know, for the hundred people that came, hung out a little bit afterwards. And then left. And I've got a signed poster of Limp Biscuit. I, I was thinking, oh, this band will never really take off. And But they were extremely friendly guys. I remember Fred in particular was just very outgoing, you know, very gracious dude. Fast forward to a few years later, and they uh, came to Pine Knob Music Theater, which is sort of our outdoor amphitheater in the Detroit area. And they played a daytime set. I can't remember, T, if it was... What festival was it? it was Ozfest. It wasn't Lollapalooza, but it was it was a touring festival. I want to say it was Ozfest. And to show kind of this was even before they really took off, they did a daytime set. It was broad daylight. And dude, I've just never seen a front man engage a crowd like like Fred Durst did that day. And he yeah. literally threw the crowd into a frenzy. And this is a amphitheater, so there was pavilion, which is where I was because I was reviewing the show and most fans were on the grass as we call it, but there's a hill, the lawn. Yeah. The lawn, yeah. And which Fred, is GA, right? You, you show up and you correct. find a spot and you, yeah. yeah, you'd find a spot. Fred had this crowd so much in the palm of his hand. He literally started what I would call a riot up on the hill. What he had, he instructed everybody to get out their keys. He did this in such a quick amount of time. He, got, he asked everybody to get up their keys and start digging up the sod from the lawn. And within seconds, you look back and there's just this slow flurry of sod flying around. And I'm looking back like, well, that looks a little bit cool, but I'm a little worried about scale here. And all of a sudden, it just was pouring sod, flying left to right, front to back, all over the lawn. 
And it was one of those sites that like, I'll never get out of my head because it was so surreal. And they were playing, I believe they were playing faith. And it was during one of those, you know, up-tempo moments in faith. And you just look up and there's just brown and green sod just flying all over the hill. And I was kind of scared. It was like, oh my gosh, like it's a riot. Like it's, they're actually tearing up Pine Knob Music Theater. They finished the song, they finished the set. And typical of these festivals, everyone sort of dispersed, right? To go to wherever they needed to go or check out another band on another stage. And dude, the entire lawn was gone. Yeah. It was mud. It was just yeah. all dirt and mud. And it was shocking. It was shocking. Within a five minute trajectory, this dude had gotten the hill at Pine Music Theater to literally destroy the entire lawn. That's how bought in everybody was to Fred Durst at this time. He was so charismatic and he was such a leader, you know, just in the whole scene that uh, he was able to stir up that much excitement and that much chaos. And I think he sort of thrived on that. So from the peaceful in-store of 100 people and seeing these guys just be very normal dudes to seeing them literally start a riot at our hometown music amphitheater was, uh, was quite a transformation and one that I'll surely never forget. Yeah, that is. You know, he, he really had a presence as a personality and on stage. You know, he kind of walked out there and, and people got revved up. Sometimes he didn't even really have to do that much. But he knew how to push the buttons. And I actually think that, you know, it led to their downfall in a lot of ways. Um, I, I don't have anything as personal. I mean, it's very cool that you were at the record store and got to kind of interact with them in person. Um, all I remember about Significant Other, and I sort of mentioned it earlier, it's just that everybody had it. It was just one of those. There are certain albums during this time period of really the entire 90s decade And, you know, you kind of had some in the early part of the decade, you kind of had some in the mid and you had some later. This was one of those late nineties, everyone had it albums. And it was one of those that like, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to own or, you know, it wasn't necessarily my genre, but the second I heard, and it wasn't Nookie, it was, you know, a couple of the album tracks. It was like, oh man, I need to own this, (laughs) you know? And so um, I just remember listening to it and Again, you knew the singles, but the album cuts were really when, for me, it was like, oh, these guys are good. You know, this is not, this is not some novelty act where they're jumping around, you know, with 80s covers and then kind of goofy songs like Nookie. Like this is, this is a real band. You know, these guys are musical. These guys are interesting. They're creative. So it was a definite, you know, plowing through this album and getting through the album tracks, which we will do shortly, was a big deal for me. I think everybody remembers Woodstock 99, right? And, you know, tied to your wonder story, part of what was, you know, notorious about this group was the just insane amount of backlash that they received after this performance. So they got up there and played sort of a late afternoon set at Woodstock. And and for those who don't necessarily recall, you know, there was a Woodstock 1994, uh, which Nubs and I actually went to our very cool mom took us, God bless her. And, uh, you know, that was where there was a, uh, a rainstorm and it turned into a mud pit, you know, out in Saugerties, New York. And it, you know, it was a little bit of a shit show, but they decided, but it was still fun and it was a pretty positive event. And, you know, this, this sort of reprise of Woodstock. 
And then they decided to do it again in 1999 and it basically turned into a disaster, you know, with, with riots and with people getting hurt and all kinds of bad stuff happening, you know, in the crowd. Limp Biscuit took a lot of the blame for a lot of this chaos and a lot of this behavior. And, you know, I've gone back and, and watched the performance in its entirety. And I think they got a little bit of a bad rap. Um, but so was Fred Durst doing all he could to calm people down? Of course not. You know, that wasn't his thing. And to your point about the Pine Ob story, this is kind of what he did. And uh, the people who booked Limp Biscuit at Woodstock knew it. And, you know, I'm not sure what kind of coaching Fred Durst was given before he went out there, but he was kind of out there doing his thing. Now he did say a few times during the show, don't hurt each other. Um, you know, we're hearing that there there's trouble out there. You know, everybody get your aggressions out, get crazy, but do it, you know, without hurting each other. But then, you know, he launched into break stuff and basically told everybody to, you know, um, I guess that they were tearing like wood panels off of the fencing and off of the, you know, billboards and setting them on fire and, you know, throwing them around. I mean, it was just, you know, it just got, it just got chaotic. Who knows how much the band really contributed toward that, or if it was inevitable at this Woodstock 99 event, but it really hurt the band. And it's something that's very memorable around this era and, and really sort of began the critical, at least demise uh, of this group. Now, truth be told, it's a hell of a performance. I mean, if you, if you go back and look at it, I mean, you see the, the instrumentation taking place, you see, you know, Durst as a performer, you see West Borland as a player. I mean, it's a hell of a performance, but probably one that, you know, nobody was perfect. There were a lot of people, including the band and including Durst, that probably could have done more to keep things a little bit calmer. But, you know, in of its time, and I think it's to your point about where things were at, this sort of pre-9-11, you know, kids were kind of just looking for something, almost seemed like looking for something to be angry about. And I think that that all culminated with this, all of this tension that was taking place uh, which we look back at it now and it's silly because we've had real problems since then, <laughs> including what we're going through right now. But, you know, it seemed to culminate at this Woodstock event and Limp Bizkit as a band seemed to kind of get caught up in that, uh, whether they deserved it or not. Well, let's jump into it here. And uh, we've got 16 tracks. We're going to plow through it pretty quickly because that is a heavy number of tracks and some are, some have more meat than others, but, uh, but we'll get through it uh, uh, rather quickly here as we drop that needle. Let's go. All right. This is in, in typical Limp Bizkit fashion. I, I believe uh, certainly their first couple albums, you know, had this format, um, early on, but uh, we had this sort of bookended intro and outro. So what has become a, a rather uh, iconic sound here is the uh, track one intro to Significant Other. It almost kind of just takes you back, you know, when you hear this, you know, uh, in plowing through the album for the episode, you you know, you obviously you go start to finish, which I hadn't in some time. And boy, that intro comes up and you're like, 
<laughs> you're like right back in 99. It's crazy. It's like, oh yeah, that's how the album started. I think that the whole intro piece is a, it's an ode to hip hop, you know, which is obviously a huge part of the Limp Bizkit sound yeah. and image is their, their kind of ode to hip hop albums and hip hop albums, you know, typically start with some sort of intro, which is always been kind of hilarious to me, you know? I want to make a, I, I personally want to make a hip hop album just so I can, you know, come up with a cool intro, you know, whatever that may be. And you should, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for nubs going hip hop. I, I, I'd say, put it, put it down on, put it down on track. Let's go. After the intro, which is quick and pretty understated, we get into this groove just like this. I mean, dear Lord, <laughs> it's like, if, if you like groove and you like power, I think just like this is awesome. I mean, it is a really, really strong opener. And I remember again, kind of touched on it in wonder stories. This was a moment when they bust into that. It's like, Ooh, like the, <laughs> we're about to, we're about to dig into something here. Right. And it's a really awesome chorus section we're going to talk, I think a bunch about Fred Durst as a singer, not just a rapper. And obviously his voice sounds great during this chorus section. And there's some really good singing and true vocal elements on this album, which, which differentiated it from their first record. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, you know, Scott Weiland was in there helping and you can kind of hear that a little bit, but man, groove machine here on just like this. There's a reason the song starts with that drum groove. It just kind of dials you in right off the bat. But it's the mix of Wes Borland's guitar and the bass sound. What, what's really, what can't be overlooked about Wes Borland is his tone. Guy's got amazing guitar tone. It's, it's really thick and it's in your face, but you can pick out all the intricacies that he's doing. And when the whole kind of band comes in and explodes into that, you know, chorus riff, it's something that definitely grabs your attention and uh, it's something you have to kind of nod your head to, you know? And uh, that's one of the things you always remember about Limp Bizkit. You know, everybody was kind of in the groove, kind of the white guy groove at those shows. And that speaks to the groove of the players. You know, these guys had great rhythmic sensibility and no matter what Fred was doing, and we'll talk about this on certain tracks, no matter what he was doing, it really doesn't matter if you're dialed into the musicianship and there's a high level of it certainly on this opening song it's a really strong opener i agree it really pulls you in and then takes you to basically a 90s anthem in nookie You know, obviously, it's um, it's pretty iconic uh, of its time, and it's and it's pretty silly, you know, which which obviously you know happened from time to time with this band, but it's a huge song, you know. If you if you kind of pull apart 
some of the, the, the goofiness and tongue in cheekness of the lyrics and all those things, which obviously made it what it was, you know, it's a, it's a really big song, you know, just all together as far as its power and as far as its, you know, rhythm section, all the things that you see really throughout this thing. The middle section is very musical. Again, a great vocal from Durst. Um, and I think that that helped kind of tie it all together. So it wasn't just this kind of, you know, goofy jump around and get in the mosh pit and, you know, yell along with the lyrics thing. There, there's a very musical section here in the middle. And they were good at that on this record. They, they were really good at providing a section that you were going to like. Nookie was the the working title of the song. And Wes Borland actually came up with that. He just said, we'll just call this Nookie while it's, a, you know, uh, kind of a work in progress. Fred played off that and actually, you know, obviously expanded on that lyrically. And then Wes Borland was like, man, I hate the lyrics to this, but I guess it's my own fault because I came up with the working title, you know, so kind of a interesting piece of this. But hey, you know, it, no matter how you draw it up, it's a it's an anthem from the late 90s. Love the verses. I, I think Terry Date's production brings out just some of the, the musicality of the verses and, and what's going on back there with Wes's really creative guitar work. The chorus is, is, you know, it's kind of hard to listen to in 2020. It's like, uh, you know, if only this song was a little less dated, listening to it at 19 and being at a show or being in college or whatever is, it's just a little different than listening to it at 40, you know, and I'm not trying to poo poo it. It is what it is for its time, but you would have felt more longevity in the song if it wasn't kind of so ridiculous in the chorus. But I love the verses. And this band really explored dynamics very well. But whereas some, we've talked a lot about Loud, Quiet, Loud, Limp Bizkit's dynamics are like heavy and heavier and then the utmost <laughs> heavy, you know? Right, right. And they play with it very well, though, and, and quite successfully on this song, for sure. Well, the, the you know, the, the idea of, you know, does this hold up and does this feel outdated and all that? Certainly something that uh, is an interesting point and we'll touch on it later. Now, here's the song that um, really was was infamous because of the Woodstock 99 uh, incident more than anything. But also it was a hit and a very, very well-known Limp Bizkit track in Break Stuff. If you just kind of listen to what Wes is doing here, and it's not, you know, part of what's intriguing about his playing is there was sort of this drop D thing and there was this just kind of chugging thing that you heard a lot, but he put a lot of variation on, you know, and, and in this case, during these choruses here on break stuff, he's playing a single note, but he's bending it and he's tweaking it to kind of give it some dissonance. He, he does a lot of those type of things that are in some cases understated, but man, do they give them uh, a unique sound compared to, the way just sort of a regular guitar player would play something like that. The ending, you know, where he's yelling, give me something to break is like, I mean, that's just a, it's just pure chaos, but it's good. It's powerful. You know, the video is funny. They're there. And again, this idea of Fred being very well liked. And I think people like just wanted to hang with him. There's some very interesting cameos in this video. Roger Daltrey, uh, Seth Green, Flea, uh, Richard Lewis, the comedian, uh, Polly Shore, Derek Jeter, baseball player, and then uh, M not just Eminem, but uh, Eminem's daughter, uh, Haley, 
so, you know, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny because it's this song that's like really aggressive and stuff, but they're kind of having fun in this video and bringing in kind of a random cast of cameos. And, and again, you know, Fred was a guy that people wanted to hang with. So what do you think of break stuff? Does it hold up? Yes. Yeah, it does. When we look at albums, a lot of it comes down to, you know, what, where were we when this album came out? I was in college and we used to listen to break stuff like before going out. It was just a song that like got everybody fired up, you know, it was like, a, <laughs> right. you put it on and blast it. Really it was loud. a primer. Yeah. It was, it was a, a primer, primer song. Yeah. I think it holds up because of the guitar work. Again, lyrically, vocally, we're not too ridiculous here, you know, and that's sort of the scale you use as you retrospectively look at Limp Bizkit is like, how ridiculous this is on the low level of ridiculous. You know, it's kind of a song of aggression and the music supports that. So the whole package works really well, but certainly, you know, I think the, the guitar work and the chugging aspect of the chorus, um, it's a good energetic number for sure. Well, think about what we've done here. I mean, obviously putting the intro track aside, you had just like this nookie and break stuff. I mean, that is a hell of a way to get you going. I mean, that is, that's strong. I think it's a, it's a smart move here. And certainly the song that it could be argued, I guess, with the exception of Nookie, certainly ended up being their most well-known tune was one that was a little bit more mellow and a little bit more um, groovy and had some jam elements. And it was Limp Bizkit's only song to hit number one on the modern rock chart on Billboard. And that's rearranged. To be the one to disappoint you when I don't fall down But you don't understand when I'm attempting to explain It's a good vocal. You've got a nice middle jam. The video is interesting. It kind of showed them on trial for the Woodstock thing. It was a whole sort of, you know, play up of, of that whole thing. I think it's a, it's a tune that shows their range, you know, because it is, you know, pretty minimal. And they, they showed that on this record, which is so thick and so much layering that they were able to pull back a little bit. And I think that's part of what created the, the nice appeal around rearranged, but ultimately I think it's just a great vocal by Durst. Yeah. To me, this is the one that really holds up. And if you really want to listen to Limp Bizkit and take them seriously, there's a few songs in their catalog where it really works in that way. And the ensuing album, the Chocolate Starfish album, the closing track is a song called Boiler. It's easily my favorite Limp Bizkit song. And that's because it's, it's sort of serious and it, it has this drama to it. And rearranged has that drama to it, right? It, it's moody and it shows a side of the band that was unique. And I would say in my listening to this album, top to bottom for the first time in, you know, 15 plus years, rearranged was the moment where I was like, Ooh, this, that's really good. Like that's, they really got to something there that I think could resonate with 2020. We talk about the Dolly Willie rule, right? Like we talk about the songs on the album that Dolly Parton or Willie Nelson could cover mm. and it would work. Rearranged to me is Dolly Willie. You know, it's just a very well put together song with dynamics and mood. It's got a, a vocal line that anybody could sing that isn't so Fred Durst that it becomes distracting. Uh, to me, it's just a very, very well done rock song. You could see a lot of people cover this and have success with it for sure. So high point of the album for sure. All right. I didn't think we were going to get the uh, Dolly Willie rule on this one, but uh, hey, glad, glad, glad to hear it. And I agree with you that, you know, 
we'll see it a couple of times as we continue through it here that when they were serious, when they were buttoned up, they were pretty damn good. So some of their goofy stuff and some of their a little bit left of center stuff certainly was memorable. And it's an important piece of the overall Limp Biscuit experience. But but when they dial in and they get, you know, centered, um, it, they were pretty damn good. And we'll continue to see that a couple of times here as we uh, plow through it. But before we get to uh, a couple of these more, I guess, serious tracks, we'll venture off for uh, one that's uh, a little bit more playful from Durst here in I'm Broke. Kind of a nice vocal, you know, kind of a nice uh, chorus hook there. Some really good bass work, as we're hearing right now. Um, A song with cool sections. And I love the lyrics. I think they're really funny. Um, You know, just just talking about, you know, everyone's just taking all of his money. And I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's kind of funny. Um, This song always kind of makes me laugh. But musically, there's some cool stuff going on, actually. Yeah, cool atmospheres in the background. I think DJ Lethal needs a shout. This some of the work that he did with on the tables and with some of the sound effects and things like that were really important to the sound. So when we talk rhythm section, when we talk John Otto and Sam Rivers, I think DJ Lethal needs a little bit of love on that too. Very good point. DJ Lethal came from House of Pain, which was his previous group uh, prior to joining Limp Bizkit. And I agree, his work with this band and on this album, certainly worthy of a shout out. Let's get to a song uh, with some rather significant and rather talented personnel here, uh, particularly vocally. This is Nobody Like You. So obviously Scott Weiland, you can hear that pretty distinctly. And and we mentioned him earlier as not just contributing on Nobody Like You, but being pretty involved in, in kind of almost serving as um, Fred Durst's vocal coach in studio, spent a lot of time in the studio. So cool that he was around a bunch. You can hear it here. And obviously Jonathan Davis from Korn makes his appearance with his unmistakable contribution as well. And it's funny, they have a really interesting tie-in with Korn as well. Korn kind of gave Limp Bizkit their first major gig opening for them. They befriended each other as bands and you know, the the guys from Corn heard Limp Bizkit stuff. And this was still when Corn was pretty up and coming and said, hey, come open, you know, a leg of shows for us. And that was really a big deal for Limp Bizkit. So all these things, you know, you mentioned earlier, Fred's a connector, all these things, you know, kind of working together. And clearly, you know, you can tell that Fred was big on kind of paying some homage and paying some tribute and having some inclusion with some of these people that had helped him uh, and helped his band uh, really become what they were. He seems like the type of dude that never really forgot the people that helped, you know, help them get to where they needed to. And, uh, and boy, all that aside, I mean, just putting personnel aside, I think this is a really good song. Yeah. I agree with all of that, you know, just Limp Bizkit at its best. And when Limp Bizkit was at its best, whether that's rearranged or boiler or tracks like this, I mean, 
they're a band to really be taken seriously, you know, and musically adventurous and pushing the boundaries and trying different things. And, you know, and they, they always come along and ruin it with some absurd juvenile thing, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, these are the things that could connect with listeners 20 years later. You know, and, and this track is a great example of that. Well, the strength, I think this is a really high point of the album here. Um, and the strength kind of continues here with Don't Go Off Wandering. I think it's the best song on the album. Um, pretty dramatic, actually. A lot of feeling to it. Really, really well composed. Great vocal from Durst. I mean, this is the, the, there's so many moments on this record where you got to give it to him, not just as a rapper, but as a voice and as a vocalist. Um, this was certainly upon first listen, which I somewhat remember. This was the moment for me where I realized that this was a good band. You know, this was a band that kind of knew how to put something together that was extremely unique at that time. And in this case, extremely good. I, I, I love Don't Go Off Wandering. And there's emotion to it. They're not doing something just to do it here. It, it seems like from a musical perspective. And again, like you said, what's the common thing on most of the songs that pop off this album? It's Fred's vocals. You know, it's when he's doing things that are different than even what was expected in a rap rock genre in 1999. So I like the emotional power of the song. And yeah, it's, it, it continues this nice part of the album, sort of from rearranged into the next few tracks. The album certainly kind of hits a high point. Well, we bring her down a little bit here from, I think, a real undisputed back-to-back high point uh, as we get into track nine. Uh, 1999. This is just a, I mean, this is a 90s new metal jumper. You know, this is where the crowd just gets it going up and down. It's a real jam. Uh, a lot of power, great heavy section at the end, and then kind of a nice little synth outro. That could have been DJ Lee Thought Work, but also it's worth mentioning Scott Borland, who is Wes Borland's brother, provided keyboards on several songs on this record, and I, and I think provided some important layering. And, the, you know, Wes and Scott, you know, they were, in a lot of ways, they were kind of like us. They were brothers who would jam a lot growing up and and really kind of fascinated by music and fascinated by how to create interesting sounds and the inclusion of Scott Borland as part of the personnel thing here, I think is uh, worth mentioning. And he could have contributed toward that, uh, that synth outro, but you know, again, you're continuing here with 1999 with just a lot of power. Yeah. And rolling guitars. The only thing about the song is it, it, you start to get a little sense of repeating themselves, even just the riff. It just sounds kind of like, two or three things that we've heard already. So I like the period piece aspect of it. You know, the, 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 the phonetic spelling they did of the title and everything. It's, it's very late nineties, but 
yeah, some trademark stuff here, but you're starting now to maybe get into a, a period of the album where things start to get a little less interesting. Well, here's a song that I just truthfully wish wasn't on the album. This is End Together Now. I kind of wish that they would have shut the F up uh, in not doing this song rather than contributing <laughs> it. Now, listen, I get it, Method Man. I get it that, you know, Fred Durst wanted to make sure that some of his rap roots and some of his rap interests were represented. And I mean, it's a true rap song. I mean, the band wasn't really that included. DJ Premier wrote the music and Fred and Method Man obviously collaborated. It's I don't even really consider this a Limp Biscuit song. I think this should have been created separately you know as a single or as a collaboration or something like that so I, I think it really sticks out on this album in a bad way of something that is so sonic and so layered and has so much band rhythm section production value and then you've got this just sort of random rap song i mean i kind of wish they wouldn't have included this lame business move next yeah agreed all right, let's shake that one off and get to trust. Well, it has a question mark on it, so I guess it's trust. It's a little messy. You know, I mean, there are some breakdowns and there's kind of a rap beat outro. So, a little all over the place here and in something that, you know, I think we were, I think we were just starting to get really focused there coming off of don't go off wandering. And then, you know, and even 1999 and then things are kind of unraveling a little bit here. So, you know, uh, there's some cool power to it, some cool groove to it, but you know, I feel like we're getting a little, a little sloppy here. I do like John Otto's uh, drum performance on this song you know that is not an easy rhythm to pull off and have it be yep. as clean as it is so yep. i dig that i do like that the, when they go real into the metal stuff you know it's to me that's much more effective than if they let's say crowbar a random rap song into an album right so i i dig the the sheer ferocity of it but aside from that yeah it's like for instance if they crowbar a rap song into it just just for instance, for example, yeah. for yeah. example. Yeah. Well, we, we downshift a little bit here for what is kind of a pop song here and, you know, co-written by Brennan O'Brien um, and features Aaron Lewis from Stained, which Brad has an interesting, funny story with, but this is no sex. I mean, the lyrics are kind of whatever, but it's a cool song, you know, it's, uh, it's real catchy and it's, you know, you can tell that it's got Brendan O'Brien's fingerprints on it a little bit. Aaron Lewis makes a nice contribution. It's funny. Fred first met Aaron and actually hated him because there was some cover art. He felt like Aaron ripped off cover art or something. Who knows? And this was before Stained was, they were still kind of playing in clubs and up and coming. 
and and they were set to open for Limp Biscuit, and Fred was trying like hell to get them off the bill because he didn't like Aaron and he didn't, you know, he was mad at him over whatever this cover art or whatever. And, and then, and he was unable to get them off the bill. Well, then he watched Stained open for them that night and was like, oh, damn, these guys are really good. And he signed them. So, so he went from, it shows the business savvy a little bit of Fred Durst because he had his preconceived kind of issue with, uh, with Aaron Lewis. And, but then watch the band realized they were good and was so impressed that he put that aside and signed them. And I think it's really kind of a symbolic story of kind of Fred Durst putting in some cases, you know, sort of business first and also vision first, right? Cause you know, he realized that these guys were good and, and, and him and he and Aaron ended up being buddies, you know, of course, cause it seems like everybody ends up being buddies with Fred Durst eventually, but they collaborate here on no sex. What do you think of this song? Nub? If I remember right, didn't you always like this song quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that it kind of goes along with a couple of the others that shows them a little bit more focused and a little bit more dialed in. It's it's a catchy song and the lyrics are, they're not silly, but they're certainly, you know, pretty literal. Um, but yeah, all in all, I think it's a, it's a pretty good track. I think it's a good recovery from, you know, you get through in together. Now you get through trust and you're kind of like, oh man, the wheels are falling off. I feel like it kind of guides the ship back in the right direction a bit. So certainly. Yeah. There, there's definitely a slickness to it. It was made for radio, which, you know, you, you bring in Brendan O'Brien to do just that. The composition is strong. I think you're being nice with uh, calling the lyrics literal, you know, they're, they're hard to. They're hard to hear when you're 40. <laughs> but again, at its time, um, as visionary as Fred Durst was at times, it, it just would have been interesting for him to at some point stop and think, gosh, can I, can I sing this song when I'm 45, you know, and keep a straight face? It almost wastes a, a melody that had pretty strong commercial potential by throwing lyrics on top of it that are, you know, just sort of hard to hear. But aside from that... I think it's a great team effort and I love the addition of Aaron Lewis. And I'm not surprised that Fred, like most people that saw Stain during this era were pretty enamored because Stain's a pretty, uh, pretty amazing band as well. I think you make a really great point, not just about, you know, Fred's personality specifically, but about kind of the entire attitude around this time in this idea of not really thinking about the future, not really thinking about, how things will hold up or how things will age. This was a time period. There wasn't social media. You weren't like looking back at what was posted on Facebook 10 years ago and all this stuff. I mean, you were kind of living in the now and you were kind of, you know, to your earlier point, you were kind of in a time period where there wasn't a ton to gripe about. You know, this is pre nine 11. This is pre, you know, the world kind of turning into an ugly place in a lot of ways. And I think people were just so fixated on what's happening now, having a good time now, saying what you want to say now, you know, it was a pretty indulgent, it wasn't quite eighties, you know, uh, Coke and wall street indulgent, but it was similar in sort of more of a post grunge type of a post minimalist way. Things were becoming a little bit more produced, you know, things were becoming a little bit more just, you know, do what you got to do to kind of capture the moment right now. And I think that that not only reflected upon Fred in a song like this, but it reflected upon everybody. And I think that was part of the sort of indulgence and the 
inability to downshift in many cases that brought this band down and really kind of eventually brought our entire pop culture down a bit because this was at a time where people weren't really thinking about longevity. And to your point, you know, they probably would have been a better band and Fred would have been a a better artist all in all if he had, because some of this work certainly would have held up better if, if that was part of the thinking. But I think that that, you know, you mentioned zeitgeist earlier. I think that was part of the kind of zeitgeist here of this uh, tip end of the end of the 90s. And remember, too, that the mid to late 90s was the very beginning of the nostalgia movement. The, the, it was in the early infancy. Now we can always look back and say, you know, all bands and artists and musicians should be planning to do this for 40 years because that's just what bands do. That was not the thought in the mid to late nineties, you know, those nostalgia tours and things like that were in the very early days. So as smart as he was, I'm sure Fred wasn't sitting around saying, man, I really need to start writing some songs that I can sing when I'm 55, but that's how it has shaken out, you know, and Limp Bizkit now is in a very strange way, a nostalgia band. We don't, you and I don't think of them like that because to, to us, it feels like yesterday that they were, one of the biggest bands in the world, but now they're sort of on the nostalgia circuit. And I think you'll see more and more bands start to think long-term about their careers. Indeed. Track 13, show me what you got. Very intentional. Um, I played the section where they mentioned Lawrence and Detroit. Did you catch that? Now, this came out in 1999. I was in college in Lawrence, Kansas. And the fact that people that didn't even care for Limp Bizkit that much, like the fact that he said Lawrence in the song, it was like an anthem, like you'd hear it in the bars, you know? Um, So it's a little bit near and dear in that way. I mean, mentioning Lawrence, Kansas, when you're rifling off all these cities, I mean, come on, Fred, that a boy that away rock chalk let's go <laughs> um so very cool in that regard and you know hey three cities later he's throwing out detroit so obviously uh you know there was no brainer as far as what section that didn't suck we're a little used to having uh, our city name checked in songs more than lawrence kansas so i have to say lawrencing is is very cool for you Indeed. So this song obviously was utilized live to just get people into a frenzy and just whip people up into insanity. And it often worked, but you know, great bounce to it. You know, it's kind of cool. There's definite rap rock here. You know, the city shout outs again, Fred doing the Fred thing of, of giving sort of homage and all that. I like it. I think it's, you know, it's not like going to be renowned as a uh, classic or anything, but I think it does what it needs to do here as we get down the stretch. Yeah, it's got a nice little payoff. And if you were at a show and uh, limber enough to jump around, which you and I are no longer, I suppose it would be a nice little listen. Well, we are busy dancers. We were able to, you know, move and shake a little bit. I mean, listen, we got we got some moves, but uh, jumping up and down. Yeah, that might, you know, we might need an ambulance if that happens. Hard on the knees. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Hey, T, this album does have an ending, doesn't it? Or is it just going to infinity? <laughs> Actually, we're, we're pretty much at the last true song here in track 14 called A Lesson Learned.
This reminds me a lot of when we did the Check Your Head episode of Namaste, which is kind of that, you know, swirly sort of mellow closer to Check Your Head. This, I think, kind of serves in a similar fashion. There's some cool vocal stuff here going on. It's an interesting sort of mellow take kind of over a cool beat you know i think this is like easing you out of the album here so show me what you got it's really the last track and then you've got this which kind of swirls you toward the end and then obviously the outro as the closer so any thoughts on a lesson learned uh, you know limp biscuit goes space and kind of lush and again showing some different cards and that's a good thing you know so I, I like how thoughtful they were about the beginning of the album and the end of the album. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a thoughtful and interesting way to wind significant other to a close. And we do just that here with the outro. <laughs> Which is essentially the intro with some limp biscuits in the house. And kind of a spooky growling voice coming across. So, and that wraps us up. So, 15 tracks, the intro and outro bookends, and we complete the process of Significant Other. Nubs, did it matter? This album matters to 1999. No question about it. It was, uh, like you said, everyone had it. You know, you get in, you get in any car during this time of anyone like remotely cool and flip through their CD book or whatever, you know, mechanism they had for storing their compact discs and you, you would see significant other, right? So it definitely mattered to its time. It was such a common album. You heard it everywhere you went. The question is, does it translate to 2020? Does it translate to 2030? you know, 2040, like, is, does this thing have any longevity to it? And as an, as an album, I would say no. I think that there's some tracks that should live on. But outside of that, I just don't think it's relevant to the earthy authenticity that audiences crave today. It's brilliant for its time, but I don't see a whole lot of translation to today. So, but certainly matters to 1999. How could you say it doesn't, man? It sold 16 million records. 16 million, dude. I mean, that's crazy. So what do you think, man? Does it matter? Well, I'll save kind of the viewpoint on the present for the final cut, but the viewpoint on of its time, oh yeah, it mattered a lot. I mean, this is an important record for its genre, extremely important, and took a genre that was certainly up and coming. I mean, you had Korn, you know, and you had some other bands that were getting into this new metal thing, but to kind of pull it all together with, you know, these rap elements, with this personality element of Fred Durst, this was very, very influential and very important at the time. Now, again, the 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 hindsight view on Limp Biscuit and on Fred and on all these things have become a little comical over time. And, you know, again, part of that's stuff they did and part of that stuff where critics have gotten a little out of hand and all that. If you're just focusing on whether or not this record mattered in of its time and helped continue to pave the way and create this genre, but with a lot of unique twists to it, as far as production, as far as sonic treatment of a record, as far as what you can do with the guitar, as far as the bounce of the rhythm section. And then, you know, Fred doing this sort of rap plus vocal element 
Yeah, this this album, you know, whether you like the band or not, whether you, you know, can pop this in today necessarily or not, this one was really important. This one really mattered. And the more you kind of dig back into it and the more you sort of listen through it and put it in the context of its time, you realize that not only was it important, but it was really damn good. So the final cut and this will be interesting, Nubs. Where do you got this? Do you have it uh, on the turntable? Do you have it in the collection? Do you have it collecting dust? Or are you taking this sucker to the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? Yeah, Significant Other is going to the for sale bin for me. The couple tracks on it that I still can really connect with. I could get through a compilation or, you know, kind of put it on a playlist. Top to bottom. The album starts really strong and the first half gives you quite a bit that's relevant. And the second half just offers very little in terms of an album. I think significant other as a brand and as a thing from the late nineties holds its importance as we both recognized. I enjoyed listening to it, but I'm selling it because I just don't see many more listens of this record in my 40s and certainly not in my 50s. And if I'm lucky enough to get to my 60s and 70s, I don't think I'm going to waste my precious time getting through a 16-track album where three quarters of it feels really, really difficult to relate to. And that's not to say, and I want to make very clear before anyone accuses us of being dinosaurs here. I mean, how much music do we love from the late 90s? We've done like five albums already from 1997. This is a golden age of music that we both treasure. But it has to be something that translates, that lives. And I just don't feel like a majority of this album lives. I feel like it kind of was for its time. So significant other. Sorry, man. You're going in the for sale bin. T, where's your uh, final cut? I've got a collecting dust. So I, I really, I certainly feel it to be very important, very important of its time. And I feel it to be very good. I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think, it, you know, it's great to plow through. It's great to listen through. It's collecting dust for a couple of reasons. I, I don't think it holds up uh, extremely well. Now it's a good nostalgia piece. It's good to, it takes you back to 1999, but in some ways that's bad. You know, in some ways you don't necessarily want to pop in an album and be overly transformed to that time period. Cause then that probably means that it's not feeling terribly modern or ter- terribly relevant. There's a lot of fat to trim off this record. If this was an 11 track record, it could have been a classic. There's a lot of um, gimmicky stuff that could have been trimmed off here lyrically, et cetera, where if they would have approached things in a more sort of serious manner, it would have been a classic. It's a little bit of a missed opportunity. I think when you look at, you know, those tracks like don't go off wandering and nobody like you and rearranged, you know, you're kind of saying, God, if they could have just stuck with this approach and trim the fat and, thought a little bit about kind of the longevity of this piece i think it would have been something that we'd probably both be throwing on the turntable because musically and sonically it's really outstanding but yeah you gotta sort of put it in the context of where does it fit right now and for me it's collecting dust but again doesn't take anything away from i think our shared certain uh, appreciation and, and favorability 
in the production and the composition and the overall approach of this album. It just, it just missed too many longevity marks. I think for it to be anything further than collecting dust for me. All right, now, well, beautiful. Why don't we uh, cool her down a little bit here and uh, let's talk about what is, I know what's on your head. That's a fitted ball cap, but what's in your head? Let's go. What are your three tracks, nubbies? A little bit of a common theme with these three, totally unintentional, but uh, the first one is an opening track off of a very obscure album called Commonwealth. And the song is Whisper to Me, and the band is Plank Eye. Oh, Plank Eye, sure. Yeah. Not a great band. And coming from a scene that you and I you know, had, had some experiences with, some good music uh, coming out of this particular time period in that particular scene. Plank Eye, not a, not a band you want to get into, but this song rips. I mean, yeah. it's just a killer opening track and one that, that band had a ton of potential um you know in, in the genre you're referring to is sort of the tooth and nail christian rock genre of the sort of early to mid 90s which produced some great bands and some great work there are some if you if you're interested there are some great youtube documentaries on the tooth and nail movement and brandon evil and all the i mean it's a it's a fascinating history of bringing you know christian uh hardcore metal in in sort of this grunge you know sort of abrasive metal so i mean they, they covered a lot of different genres with a lot of great bands but more often than not, what you saw is these bands that had their moments, but just couldn't kind of put it together collectively. And probably there were a number of reasons for that. And Plank Eye was one of them. You know, they, they, they had a couple of outstanding tracks, but I agree with you top to bottom, probably not a band that was poised to uh, put together a deep catalog. For sure. Yeah. Second would be uh, a band that came out of the Limp Bizkit kind of late 90s, early 2000s, hard rock metal scene which is a band called stereo mud and they their their only hit was a song called pain do you know pain by stereo mud no i don't i don't oh, think you, so you've I'll got it, it you've got to check it out this is a song you would definitely like great we'll chorus do. real big rhythms um good stuff so pain by stereo mud that that that's a regular favorite song of mine and then audio slave the combination of rage against the machine and chris cornell the late chris cornell so sad to even say that but it's true Audio Slave's third album, Revelations, was uh, the, the last Audio Slave record. And I think you kind of hear why. It, things were not working out particularly well by then. But the title track, Revelations, is a revelation. It's just the, it's kind of everything, everything majestic about putting together such a unique group of musicians and artists. And again, a killer opening track from that third and final Audio Slave album. So. That's what's in my head, T. What is it in your head? Very good. I've got a uh, track from the 80s called Rain in the Summertime. This is by a band called The Alarm, which uh, as we're coming off the uh, summertime here, actually coming off the fall, it's uh, it's one that uh, it's a really great song, great atmosphere. And The Alarm was a kind of unheralded group in the 80s, but produced some good stuff as part of this, you know, sort of post new wave pop kind of thing going on through the uh, mid to late eighties. So rain in the summertime is a great song. The second is by a band uh, that, uh, you know, I don't know how long they stuck around for, but the band is actually called does it offend you? Yeah. Which is kind of a weird long 
band name. They actually took it from David Brent from The Office, apparently. But they have a song called Dawn of the Dead, which I think is one of the best songs of the... I think this came out maybe sometime between 2000 to 2010. We'll just say I think it's one of the best songs of that decade. So Dawn of the Dead by Does It Offend You? Yeah, if you haven't checked it out... Great song, a little festival rocky, but but more kind of electronica and before I think before this genre that you've uh that you've coined festival rock really started to get kind of ridiculous. Um these guys out of the UK put together a, a really interesting album. Um, but Dawn of the Dead is a hell of a song. And the third, I'm gonna break it down a little bit for you, get a little lovey dovey. That's Angel of the Morning by Juice Newton, which what the hell? That's just a fabulous song, no matter how you add it up. No better way to wrap up the Limp Biscuit episode than with a with a Juice Newton shout out. I think. You know, at the beginning of the episode, we were talking about Limp Biscuit and ICP. I just knew somehow we'd make our way to Juice Newton. I just <laughs> yeah. knew yeah. it was inevitable, wasn't it? Nub, uh, enjoyed the discussion. Um, you know, sorry we had a uh, a for sale bin with you here, but nonetheless, regardless of kind of how we view the album today uh, a fun one to talk about uh, certainly in of its time and and kind of a fun one to revisit both to discuss and to listen to i love the choice and i think it's always fun to explore such a period piece as significant other is but again great musicianship and a lot to enjoy during that rediscovery of it so uh appreciate the pick t as always man you make you make good picks, my man. You really well, listen, listen, buddy. Uh, just trying to keep up uh, because uh, you're, you've certainly brought the heat as well. But for now, we're going to stop telling each other how great we think each other are. And we're going to wrap up episode 23. Take care of each other. Be good to each other. And we will see you for episode 24 on Two Twins and an album. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.